Well, thank you very much. And it's really uh, a pleasure. When Richard comes to Israel, he always um, invigorates us and activates us and inspires us to do better and to do more. So I'm, I'm very honored to share the stage with him this evening. Erev Tov to everybody. And um, now that the Chagim are behind us, I can, I can uh, sober us up to the, to the serious challenges ahead. You know, there was an almost bizarre uh, happening a few years ago in the Alps. Um, some people were out there hiking, and you know, there's a lot of ice that's starting to retreat in them. And all of a sudden, they discovered the body of a man who lived in the last ice age, perfectly restor- uh, restored or preserved over the years. He had apparently been caught in the wrong place in the wrong time when the ice began to expand, froze to death, and that's how he stayed for many, many years. And it was very, very uh, eerie and bizarre, but they had this perfectly uh, preserved 800-year-old man. And then, in the Andes, a similar phenomenon. The ice retreated, and they found another human being, as if he was perfectly uh, preserved. And it was as if the ancients were coming back to give us a message. The planet is getting warmer. And that's the message. But the truth of the matter is, is that this whole notion of climate change, you don't have to have modern messages from the ancients, but if we actually look to our own sources. So uh, I couldn't have a a session here without just a word or two of Yiddishkeit. So I'm going to share with you just a little passage, if you might, from... um, Philo was one of the great scholars of Alexandria, wrote about 2,000 years ago, a great Jewish scholar. And um, if you read uh, The Days of Awe, which is the wonderful anthology by uh, Shai Agnon, our Nobel Prize winner of literature about the High Holy Days, he has this little passage in there. I was looking at it, and it's ostensibly about the Shofar when he's talking about it. But I read about it, and I realized that Philo was already talking about our reality. So I'll just start with this as sort of a say that what we're talking about today is totally within the realm of Torah and traditional Judaism. And he said, And there is another war, not of human agency, when nature is at strife in herself. Should we turn down lights? Maybe you could read a little clearer. I don't know if I didn't couldn't figure out how to do that, but if somebody could figure it out, it'd be great. When nature is at strife in herself, when her parts make onslaught one on another, and her law abiding sense of equality is vanquished by the greed for inequality. Both these wars worked destruction on the face of the earth. The enemy cut down the fruit trees, ravaged the country, set fire to the foodstuffs and the ripening ears of corn in the open fields, while the forces of nature used drought, rainstorms, violent moisture-laden winds, scorching sun rays, and intense cold accompanied by snow, with the regular harmonious alternations of the yearly seasons turned into disharmony, a state of things, in my opinion, caused by the impiety which does not gain a gradual hold, becomes rushing with the force of a torrent among those whose these things befell. Oh, that's even too much. Maybe go back one less. There was uh, maybe just one less. There was there was a there was a second uh, there was a second thing maybe. There, that's good. There we got it. That's a nice balance. I'd like to be able to see you all to see if you're asleep or not. It's important. But the 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 point I want to make here is this notion of uh, human behavior being something which can lead the forces of nature and uh, into uh, disarray is a very very Jewish notion. And uh, just an interesting aside before I get into the 
sort of the modern uh, politics and policies of today, I found it fascinating. The first time I was in New Zealand, I went into a reform temple because that's the most of the, the, the temples there. And I was astonished that when you look there at the Shema, for whatever reason, at this period of time, I think it was the 50s or 60s, they'd taken out the second and the third paragraphs of the Shema. I couldn't understand. I said, this is the Shema. This is like, this is not, you know, an argument over the Imaot or anything. This is a serious thing. And I started querying, and they seemed to think it had something to do with what I guess some of those theologians had felt was a simplistic notion of theology. Even the Rambam said this notion of uh, punishment and, and, and reward and all this directly from the Kodesh Baruch Hu is not necessarily something there. I know I just read about an article about Nechama Leibovich also subscribed to that. So anyway, they felt that was inappropriate, that those paragraphs which talk so much about if you act well, then God will be good to the land of Israel and good to the land, and if you act badly, he'll bring all the punishments. And the fascinating story is, about three or four years ago, a group of rabbinical students in the Reform Seminary started a revolution, and they said, we want to bring back the Shema. And they said, what do you mean? They said, it's because of this. It's because of global warming. That's the truth. We didn't realize it at the time. How indeed insightful the, the, the Bible's vision of how human activity and misbehavior and greed, as, as Philo said, can set off this cascade of environmental disasters. So I just sort of wanted to start with that as a notion to think about uh, there. And now let's talk a little bit about what's going on with global warming. And I'm assuming that all of you are here as graduates of an inconvenient truth, that I'm not here to convince any climate skeptics. If there are those in the, uh, the crowd, I respect your right to be in a very, very slender minority, but I don't want to waste the very little time we have on that kind of an argument, which has more or less been resolved by a very broad scientific consensus. So the first question we want to ask is, what does climate change mean for us here in Israel? So um, let's start with that. First of all, we have to recognize that, yes, the climate is changing. The climate has always changed. We know from archaeology, from, from pollen samples like that the Negev once, for example, was a much rainier place than it is today. And the climate has slowly but surely changed. But there's the key. The climate change that takes place today is far faster and uh, more perilous than we know. When we talk about climate change, it's not always a question of getting hotter. You have these vast fluctuations. The system is starting to lose its equilibrium. The IPCC, the International Panel for Climate Change, shared the Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore last year. Okay, If you remember, there were two people. I have a friend of mine in Washington. I used to play in a rock band with him named Joe Kruger. He and his wife are both on the IPCC. And he said he got a check like for $47 in the mail because a thousand people. But this is the international panel of a thousand experts, mostly meteorologists, but not only, who more or less are brought together by the United Nations to put out a consensus statement at a time when the science really was uncertain. They needed some the guidance. And their reports, which come out periodically, project what... Uh, climate change means, and they took a look at the different regions, the Mediterranean region. They said we should be looking at a 35% precipitation drop, okay? That was their projection when they came out with this. Three to five degrees uh, increase in temperature over the next 50, 60 years, okay? It's not maybe something that should worry all of us, but certainly our grandchildren will be feeling those kind of changes as well. Now, this summer... Just a few months ago, Israel's Ministry of Environment finally released its consensus document about what climate change is going to bring to the land of Israel. And they pretty much confirmed those very uh, discouraging scenarios. We're talking about intense and unpredictable weather. Okay, 
And for those of us who have watched a hundred-year flood and I alone closed down that major highway, the hundred-year flood three times in the last ten years, we recognize there is some changes here. Desertification, that is to say, a, a drop in precipitation and greater degradation of the drylands. Rising Mediterranean sea levels, changing ecological habitats, water scarcity, and that's just a start of it. Um, so, I don't know if you can see this, but let's talk about some of these impacts more closely. This is a um, graph of the rain patterns in Israel, starting in 1932. And as you can see, the very nature of an area like this, pardon? Um, I could change the colors, but you can see the blue line at least? Not even, okay. Well, what it shows is that a... Uh, yeah, you could turn the light off, I suppose, to show this slide. Well, maybe it's not that important. But um, the basic notion is is that there's massive fluctuations every year. That's the nature that we have. There are drought patterns, there are years... I don't know, maybe you can see this red line here. In 1992, we had a very rainy year. Then we had very dry years here. 1952 was a particularly dry year. Last year was a dry year. That's the point. Next slide, please. Okay, but the, um, the fact of the matter is, is that in these fluctuations, we see that water demand in Israel continues to grow, largely driven by the domestic sector. It used to be that agriculture took 80% of the water. Now they're down to only about 56%, and that will change. And indeed, they take... A high percentage, over half of their water now comes from our sewage. Okay? So what does this climate change mean for this very, very tight pie, this very, very quick distribution? That every year we have 20 million cubic meters of water, that's 20 billion liters of water more that we need to produce as a result of a growing population, increased standard of living. The population is expanding. Here you have population projections with the dark red being high population densities. And you can see that's happening as Israel goes from 1 million people in 1950 to 2 million people in 1960 to 7 million people today. The peace process, whether one likes it or not, suggests that there will be a need to share the limited water resources we have. Okay, Here you have pictures of different negotiations, but in each one of them, the one common denominator is that the Arab um, peace uh, negotiators demand a part of that very, very slender pie for Israel. Okay, now what do we know now? Take a look here of the different water basins in Israel. And this is the standard Israeli map that for years I've been lecturing from that says that we have 1,500 million cubic meters of water a year. And yet, if you look now, next slide, you see that we see something very different. That in fact, in the last five or six years, actually this is an eight-year, uh, uh, we've seen a drop in the natural recharge of all these resources. So while the demand goes up and the competing claims include, in fact, the amount of water that we're getting is dropping precipitously. That IPCC vision for 2070 may be with us already. Okay? Take a look at the Sea of Galilee level. Okay? From 2003 to 2008, it's not a pretty sight. And here are the pictures we all know uh, when, the, when the water goes down, what it looks like. So, uh, we are now looking at a situation for the next several years where the water, the water authority in Israel said we will be below the red lines for sure and maybe below the black lines if we don't watch it. And here's the point that I want to make about, okay? That average rainfall has dropped in the past 16 years um, from 1,350 to 1,175. Okay, that's a very, very 
shocking number. And um, the probability of having four consecutive years of drought, as we've had, four years in a row, you know, we had, didn't get enough rain. And certainly the day after Shemini Atzeret, we, uh, we should be well aware of the uh, importance of this. The likelihood of having four drought years in a row is only 2%. If you look at the last 100-year patterns, something's going on here, okay? And it's not doesn't bode well. Take a look at the rainfall patterns from 1960 to 1999 in the Arava. Again, the same pattern, a drop. The next slide shows you the area of Eilat and Stum, okay? So we're seeing a tremendous, in this case, almost a 50% drop in the desert's rains, okay? Hyper-arid regions are becoming almost like the Sahara in terms of the, the rainfall that they're not getting. Next slide. Now let's talk about another of those impacts, the sea level increase, okay? These are projections made by Adam Tevavadin, the Israel Union for Environmental Defense, when they took the worst-case scenario from the IPCC, and what would that mean for Tel Aviv, okay? Now, I don't know how many of you own uh, beachfront property on Hayyarkun Street or Ben Yehuda Street, but let me make a recommendation. Invest in Ramat Gan. You're much better off there because the, the likelihood... I mean, of course, we can learn from the Dutch and make dikes and try to save, but the fact of the matter is is that a massive sea level increase will have serious implications for that. And there's simpler, similar pictures for Haifa, what it means there. Batkalim will be flooded and the like. Next one there as well. So um, th- these are different ones. Here we see what this could mean to our neighbors, okay? What does climate change uh, bring to Egypt, okay? Who's... Uh, economy is, is still largely agrarian, still so dependent on the Nile Delta and when the Mediterranean rises and all that area is run by salt water, the agriculture will be decimated, similar to what we look for in, in Bangladesh, where they will lose 40% of their rice producing areas according to IPCC projections. Okay. Now the United Nations report, uh, Convention asked Israel's report, and so again we project this massive drop in, in rainfall, but look at the evapotranspiration. Less rain, more heat. What does that mean for crops? That means that our agriculture will be much less successful, and yet we still have fewer rainfall events will be much more dramatic, much more violent, so we'll have greater erosion as a result of that, okay? Um, We, we see already, uh, some people say Katrina is an example of that, but we see a statistically large increase in uh, large rainfall events and fewer moderate ones. In other words, during a course of a year, you may even not even have rainfall drop, but because you get it in major pulses, the this, this storm system's ability to accommodate that, the land's ability to soak it up, it runs off into the sea, it doesn't really provide you the kind of uh, irrigation that you'd want, Okay. Now, one of the things about Israel, you can give me the next part of the slide, is that we have a very, very steep rain gradient. That's what makes this a, a bonanza for ecological research, uh, researchers. So if you go down in the south, 20 to 30 millimeters, and up to 700 millimeters of rain, okay, that's more than an order of magnitudes changed in an area the size of New Jersey. So you can, in a very small area, see what changes in habitat does. And what we're seeing, we think, is this very, very dry area in the hyper-area area will be moving up, and the semi-area will be moving also north. So places like Beit Dagan were measuring rain that once was found in places like Beersheba. Now, we're pretty uh, nimble people. We're very, very resourceful. The humans may be okay, but what does it mean for the animals who live in a certain area or the plants? 
and can adapt, but not nearly as quickly as we can. And when they do move north, okay, here's, uh, they took some pictures of gazelles, so they'll be losing their water, they have to go north, they're going to bump into the Israeli urban reality. And some of the habitats, so much of the nature is based in our southern drylands, it's not clear that they're going to find the ecological corridors that can accommodate them. Um, so just uh, a few things, we're here in Jerusalem, so I can't help but mention, we just finished the summer here, I don't know if you guys felt it was warmer, statistically it was. The days where Jerusalem temperatures exceed 35 degrees is up, almost 100%. It used to be Jerusalem was the place every night you could go out in a sweater. Not true anymore, okay? The temperature is getting warmer here. Um, what does it mean in terms of urban life? It means that road construction and maintenance will be up because of this kind of uh, storm damages, and we'll have to do land restoration effort. Uh, air conditioning already is uh, almost a necessity in most of the country. People don't seem to be able to do without it, which means massive increase in power usage, uh, expansion of habitats for certain insects. Already we see uh, the, some of the, the pests that used to be, didn't get past the Nile are now migrating and causing all kinds of uh, problems. I know this spring in my parents' neighborhood in Haifa for a, uh, certain kinds of uh, mosquitoes that bring not so much malaria but other, other kinds of diseases and uh, massive desalination because we're not going to be able to uh, provide enough water for ourselves. So this is what we're looking for. So, what are we doing about this crisis in Israel? Now we get to my provocative topic, uh, to name time. And that was, I gave uh, Dr. Schwartz a selection and he picked the, the, the shanda for the going. But I really think it's true. And I say it with a sense really of sadness because as somebody moved to Israel like many of you did, I always came here with this notion that we in Israel are going to be a light to the nations. That that's what we, the whole essence of Zionism is to show that we finally have this privilege of our own Jewish state. We're going to do it differently. We are going to do it right. We're going to be a more ethical and a better place to be. And in fact, instead of a light to the nations, we're a shanded to the nations. So if you give me the, here's the, uh, the can you guys read the, uh, the caption there? It says, uh, gentlemen. It's time we gave some serious thought to the effects of global warming, okay? That more or less reflects the situation of our decision makers in Israel today. So let's talk a little bit about what we have done and what we haven't done, okay? So let's talk about the whole reason why we see such a uh, anthropogenically driven climate change is because of greenhouse gases. We're producing more carbon dioxide. We're producing more methane. All these greenhouse gases which result of combustion for the large part. Now Israel's per capita emissions of carbon dioxide equivalents is 10.5 tons per person. Okay? That's what it is. That's higher than that of the United Kingdom, higher than that of Japan. Okay? Just to give you a sense, it's not like we're a poor developing country anymore. We're using a lot. We're not as much as America. Nobody's as much as America except for a few of the Gulf sheikdoms. But we are uh, not where we should be in terms of that. So um, let's go to the next slide. Uh, here's uh, uh, a bus. We can go to the next one. Now, where does our greenhouse gases come from? Energy production is 86% of emissions. That's an interesting figure there, okay? Commercial and residential proper properties are the major users of electricity. So that means that how do they see? We've seen the enemy and it is us. In other words, 55% of electricity, 30% of CO2 is by individual usage of electricity. So when we find ways to save electricity, we are being part of the solution 
and not part of the problem. So it's very easy to point the finger at industry and say, ah, they're the problem. But in fact, it's much more. In fact, Israeli industry is relatively modest. And we don't envision Israel in terms of its economic future getting more industrialized. On the contrary, we see a decommissioning of factories. I was at a demonstration last week in uh, at Leet. Major chemical plant, it ain't long for this world. It's an old generation plant. It's going to close down just like the ACO. The ACO electrochemical plant used to be the number one employer, but it was killing people. It gave them cancer, so it got closed down. We're seeing a shift. Israel's going into high tech. Thank goodness, biotech. Those are the way we're going. And so that's not where the greenhouse gas increase is going to come from. It's from individual ones, 22% from uh, transport. Yeah. Now, um, the real problem we face as a nation and the moral dilemma involves coal. Now, we all know that there is no coal in Eretz Yisrael. What did uh, Golda Meir used to joke that, you know, how could Moses, such a brilliant man, wanted 40 years to take us to the one place in the Middle East that doesn't have any oil? Great. But it's not only that it doesn't have oil, no coal. But Israel's electricity is largely driven by the coal that we import, okay? Not only from the UK, from various sources around the world. Coal is cheap and it's uh, easy to get to here. We have lots of friends who give us coal, okay? But it is by far the most greenhouse gas intensive source of energy that was, was used today, okay? So um, we know that if we continue to grow as a population and our standard of living continues to grow as it's in the same fashion, that we're going to need to double our generating capacity in the next decade. That's not my figure. That's the Ministry of Infrastructure in Israel's uh, things, okay? So that's the first thing we have to remember, that energy demands are going to go up dramatically. And yet, 75% of our electricity is from coal. So that means if we have to double our, intent, uh, our energy use and we're using the worst possible source of energy, we could be... Uh, and it's not clear how we're going to meet the expectations that we have ourselves and the world has of us to reduce greenhouse gases, okay? Under a business-as-usual scenario, greenhouse gases in 2020 will be 54% higher than 1990, which is the baseline level that the world uses in the Kyoto Accords to figure out how to reduce. Okay, here, let's take a look at Israel's transportation patterns, okay? Look at uh, where things are uh, taking place. 62% of the trips are done by private vehicles, only 13% by pedestrians. Bicycles and motorcycles, a pitiful 3%. I want to remind you that in Amsterdam and Rotterdam, 50% of the trips are by bicycle. Now, I don't know what they know in Holland that we don't know. I think Tel Aviv is a pretty flat town, and you could use a bicycle year-round. Believe me, I used to run an organization only drove by bike. When I worked in Jerusalem as a stagiaire for the, for the Attorney General, I also rode my bike every day to work. No problem in Jerusalem, I didn't think. So this is the, the reality that when we have money for infrastructure, we're putting it into that sprawl, a lifestyle which is suburban, which requires two cars to get around. The next uh, point I want to make, uh, let's take a look at these transportation patterns in Israel. 1963, that's the number here, I know you can't see in the back. 2006, the blue line, is a uh, purple line is the buses, okay? Haven't really increased much mileage in terms of buses, okay? The population went up from 2 million to 7 million, but bus transportation is pretty flat. And at the same time, look at that geometric increase in car usage. So we can see the trends, and they're not sustainable. Mm -hmm. 
this is a uh, a general um, indicator which the Bureau of Statistics, Lishka Merkazid Statistica, put together of kilometrage driven. Okay, it's it's a madad based on a on a on a baseline hundred level. It's a government source. Okay, now what is the world doing about this? You can see here a picture from the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Bali, okay? Maybe you heard there was a big gathering. But in 1992, the nations of the world gathered to do something about the problem of climate change. It was already clear, by the way, the one world leader who saw it and rallied the most for an international convention in 1992 was Margaret Thatcher. God bless her. Should give her a long life. May not have been an environmental zealot in every field, but in climate change, she's a, got a degree in chemistry from Oxford, and she saw the scientific data and she understood it. So, Who is this? Margaret Thatcher. Oh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, so uh, she, she should live long and prosper. So um, basically, we had a 1992 framework convention, which is a very, very fuzzy sort of attempt to start talking about it. And then five years later at Kyoto, we get a protocol which for the first time requires serious targets. Not of everybody. Because you have to remember 1992 in Rio de Janeiro when they came up with the idea, the developing countries were opposed. They said, what do you want from us? We didn't make this climate change. 75% of the world's emissions come from the wealthy countries. 25% alone were from the US at that time. Now it's 25% from China as well. And why should we have to, you know, stymie our development, which in, in any way is inadequate, so that you can solve your climate change problem? Okay? They said, you know what? All we want you to do is get on board and do some inventories. We, the developing countries, which they listed in an annex called Annex 1, will take on this responsibility ourselves. Okay? So the developing country, 30-odd uh, developing, developed wealthy countries agreed to cut back their emission levels to a 1990 baseline. Some of them were less than 1990, some a little more, but that was the notion to try to stabilize this so we wouldn't increase at least, okay? And that was the guts of the Kyoto Accords. Annex 1 countries had that commitment. Now, what was Israel doing in 1992? We were there at Rio de Janeiro at the Earth Summit, like everybody else. It's okay. And um, Israel was there, although... Everybody else sent a prime minister. At the time, Yitzhak Shamir uh, was the prime minister, and he was busy in an election, which he lost to Yitzhak Rabin. So he couldn't come. He sent his director general of the Ministry of Environment, and he was the representative. And his name is Uri Marinov, and I asked him, Uri, now what happened there in Rio de Janeiro? Because all the nations that are like us with a similar GMP and industrial profile, they're Annex One countries, countries like Spain, countries like Greece. All the Mediterranean countries are an Annex One country. And yet Israel, to this day, enjoys a peculiar status as a developing country. Isn't that strange? I don't think of us as a developing country anymore. He said, well, you're right, but I thought of two things when I got there. I said, you know, first of all, it's 1992, we just took in a million Russians. So our population profile is similar to that of a developing country. We should get credit for carbon that the Russians, we're taking their people over there. And secondly, he said to the negotiators of the UN, if you want there to be peace in the Middle East, we have to have desalination. And desalination is an energy-intensive process. If you start limiting our ability to generate energy, we won't have desalinized water and the wars with the Arabs will continue. And they said, okay, okay. And anyway, I represent Israel in another uh, UN convention. 
Israel's such a non-player, we're such a black sheep, nobody even knows what's going on with us. And so we got this status as a developing country, which means we don't have to do anything. So while all the countries of Europe, less so in the United States, but now Australia has joined New Zealand in the Southern Hemisphere, are literally turning their economies inside out to figure out how they can get off this dependence on oil and, and, and conventional energy, Israel has watched its energy consumption increase. Last year, electricity usage went up 6% in Israel in one year. Imagine that. Astonishing. Population, 1.5%. So that's just something you should be aware of. Okay? Here's the, uh, the Bali roadmap says it's going to be different. So the point is that already in Europe, they've got a trading system where people who want to run businesses have to buy carbon credits to run their businesses. And if you don't have the credits, you have to go to market and buy it. Costs a lot of money, okay? It's going to a world system. And I just spent a sabbat. Uh, I taught a course in New Zealand in climate change, and in New Zealand they have a problem because what is their number one source of emissions? Global, uh, global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Sheep and and cattle, exactly, forty one percent. And methane, exactly. And the methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than the CO two is. And then in addition, they've had a big tourist industry. Anyway, they're going to have to buy $2 billion at present rates of carbon credits to meet their Kyoto commitment. Just to give you a sense of what the economics of this thing are by. So, so right now, they had a, a sort of a two or three year warm-up period. But now, this is getting very serious because in 2012, you've got to meet your Kyoto commitment. And you've got to be at that 1990 level. Or pay somebody in the world to reduce that for you. Okay. That person, by the one of the countries that you can pay is Israel, because we're no different than Nigeria or Burkina Faso or any other developing country under the UN system. This is going to the Shanda for the Goyim thing.